Why don't you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 57. We're going to read about and hopefully learn something this morning from the birth of John the Baptist and, and the great testimony and praise song from Zechariah. We concluded last week with Mary having spent three months with Elizabeth and the great rejoicing that had gone on between those two women, Elizabeth the much older woman and Mary the young girl, both whom were with child, the intimate things they must have shared. However, it is now time for Mary to go back to Nazareth. She's got to deal with Joseph and her family and face the reality of people and what they're going to think and or say. So Luke says that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then she returned home. In verse 57, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. This is significant. Those two words, I think, are worthy of underlining and or circling in your Bible. For Luke describes the happy event of the birth of John in terms of the Lord's mercy. God is merciful. We've seen that last week as we read Mary's hymn of praise and thanksgiving to God for his mercy to her. We look forward into the book of Romans in chapter 12 when Paul says to us, he says, in view now of God's mercy to you, how should you then live your life? And so the thing that is essential that we be reminded of and we remind one another of and we encourage one another about is the fact that God is merciful. God is merciful. He's not unjust. He's not unfair. He's not mean. He's merciful. And despite what circumstances may seem to say to the contrary, God is merciful. God is merciful. And so the people and the neighbors and friends and so forth, relatives of Elizabeth, they rejoice, they share in her joy because God has shown her great mercy. Now it's interesting, in Palestine, the birth of a boy was an occasion of great joy. When the time of birth was near, you see the friends and every village, every town had its local cadre of musicians and the friends and the musicians would gather near the home when the time of birth was near. It's like, it's like when we have close relatives and friends who are just getting ready to give birth and, and, and the word comes that, well, she's about ready to give birth and so everybody's poised by their phones, waiting in anticipation. It's the same sense. And then finally, when the birth announcement comes and the birth resulted in a boy being born, then the musicians and all the friends and neighbors would break forth into singing and music and rejoicing. Great congratulations would go all around and backslapping and great rejoicing. If it was a boy. If it was a girl that was born, the musicians went silently and regretfully away. That's true. The birth of a male child was a source of great joy, but the birth of a girl was a source of great sorrow. Now you have to ask yourself the question why. It wasn't just that these people were prejudiced against women, although there was a great bias against women in that culture. But every family, every set of parents lived with the hope that they would be the parents of the Messiah. They knew the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would be a male child. Isaiah says very clearly in chapter 9 of his prophecy that a child would be born, a son would be given to Israel. And that son would rule on the throne of his father David. He would be the king, the Messiah, 
the deliverer of Israel. So the parents lived, all the parents lived with this great expectation. Maybe we would be... Now, with the other prophecies, we know that the that the Messiah, the Savior, would be born in Bethlehem. And so it, there's a great narrowing now of, of understanding of, of, of the identity of the Messiah. But there was a custom, there was a hope in all of Israel that maybe we would be the parents of the Messiah. And so you can see, uh, if the family was barren, if there was no children born, it was indeed a great tragedy because it effectively eliminated that family from that great hope to which all the parents would aspire. If a daughter was born, that also would effectively eliminate them, at least through that birth, from the hope that they indeed would be the parents of the Messiah. So you can understand, with the birth of a boy, the parents would be really excited. Maybe there's some outside chance this male child will be the Savior. But obviously with a girl, there was not that hope. And so you can see why there's great initial expectation at the prospect of the birth. And then when a girl is born, it's not that they don't love the girl or cherish their daughter. Basically, it's that the daughter now disqualifies them from being the parents of the Savior. So now in Zechariah's house, we see that there is a double joy. First, they have a child. I mean, all hope was given. They were advanced in age, probably beyond childbearing age, and now they have a child, and the double joy is that that child is a son. Now they know that their son is not going to be the Messiah. For the angel Gabriel already had told Zechariah, when Zechariah was in the holy place offering the incense on the altar of incense, that, uh, that the son would be named John and that John would have a different work. And so we see that there's great joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise. The, the elders of the community came to see that the son was circumcised, that he underwent this rite of passage which gave him, according to Jewish reckoning, which gave him an inherent uh, um, claim on the kingdom of God. And so they came to circumcise. Now circumcision is, this is very interesting because it gives us a little bit of insight. And this is just kind of a little corollary to this. This is a, an extra. I thought you'd be, you'd find interesting. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Isn't that what the psalmist says? God, you have fearfully and wonderfully made us. And one, just one teeny illustration of this is in the whole rite of circumcision. According to the Mosaic law, male children were to be circumcised not upon their birth, but on the eighth day after their birth. Now, why the eighth day? Because it's on the eighth day that the clotting mechanism built into the human body is at its highest peak. God designed it so that the clotting mechanism and it's most especially vitamin K, is at its highest peak in the body. Prior to that and after that, the clotting mechanism begins to fall off. So you can see with the circumcision occurring, and there is indeed much blood, because that's a highly vascularized area, very sensitive area, that uh, with the possibility of much profuse bleeding, that child could die. And so God ensures the fact that on the eighth day, this is the, ver this is the premier time to circumcise the child. So the child has then that, that physical mark on him, which gives him a sense of identity. Today, in, when children are circumcised, male children are circumcised, it's generally right after their birth or within a day or two of their birth. It's not on the eighth day because we inject them with vitamin K to increase the clotting mechanism. So we artificially do what God does naturally on the eighth day. Isn't that interesting? And medical science only recently discovered that in the last few decades. So we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has done an awesome job. So they come to circumcise him, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. Now the normal custom was that a child be named after his father or possibly his grandfather that there be a preservation of the family name, if you will, 
that was the custom. And so the people who were coming, the automatic assumption, the presupposition was that, of course, he was going to be named after his father. When, in fact, Elizabeth, his mother, speaks up and she says, no, he is to be called John. Now, because with, right after the circumcision, and they would pronounce a blessing on the, on the child, and in the blessing, they would include the name. So-and-so, the son of, and they would have this name. So just prior to the pronouncing of this blessing and the naming of the child, the mother speaks up. She stops the process. She says, no, he is to be called John. Now, John means, literally, God is merciful. God is merciful. Now, this is Luke's theme, and, and this is the testimony to God's mercy to his people, God's mercy to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and all of that focuses in the name John, God is merciful. But the people respond, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's nobody in your family by the name of John. Where are you coming up with this name? This is not a customary thing. And so there's some sense that they need to consult Zechariah. Now, remember, Zechariah has been mute, he's been silent, and there's some indication here that he has also lost his capacity for hearing. He's been this way for nine months. And they go to consult him. Elizabeth has probably gotten in the habit now of speaking up. When, when dad's silent, mom always speaks up. Isn't that true? Yes, it's always true. So we find that they go to Zechariah to inquire. They made signs to his father. Apparently he can't hear, so they have to make signs to him to find out what he would like to name the child. Certainly he would like the child named after himself, which would be, again, the custom. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote... What did John, what did uh, Zechariah wrote? Right. His name is John. Is there a difference between what he says and what Elizabeth says? Is there a difference? What does Elizabeth say? He is to be called John, but Zechariah says his name is John. I think there's a significant difference. Now remember, Zechariah has been locked up in this silent world for nine months. He's had a lot of time to think. <laughs> Remember the Apostle Paul when he was confronted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and he's blinded for three days? I expect he had a lot of time to think. Put things in proper perspective. Re-evaluate some of his categories and presuppositions. Zechariah's had nine months to think, and the moment he's given the opportunity to, to, to speak on this issue, he doesn't say, we're going to call him John. He says, his name is John. God has named him. It's a settled issue with Zechariah. There's no doubt about it. God has said it. That settles it. God has said it. That settles it. No argument. His name is John. God has said it. That settles it. If you want to know which way to go, God's already said it. He's already told us. There is a principle, understand, there is a principle in Scripture for you no matter what decision you face in your life. God said it. He's given a direction. He's given a way to go. The way to go is the way of obedience. Let me say that again. The way to go is the way of obedience. We as parents tell our children, obey me and your life will prosper. <laughs> Don't we say something like that? Sure. Your life will prosper. If you, obey, if you obey me, I know the way to go. If you obey me, if you do what I say, your life is going to prosper. And those few children that actually believe us and obey us 
their lives do prosper, don't they? God says the same thing. He says in his word, my words are life. He says, if you obey me, you will have life. You'll have it abundantly. You'll know the truth. The way to healing in a person's life is the way of obedience. The way to healing in a person's life is the way of obedience. The issue for us is to learn to obey God. When we encourage others, when we counsel others, when we direct others, we always want to direct them, encourage them, urge them to obey God. When they're in a query over something, we say, what does God say? What does his word say? Let's fill our minds with the understanding of what God says, and then let's do it. For that leads to life. Zechariah understood that. He believed God now, and he says, in effect, his name is John. Now, immediately, we're told that his mouth was opened. Immediately, now he is given, he has restored his capacity for speech and presumably hearing are restored. He begins to speak, and the first thing that comes out of his mouth is what? Praise to God. I mean, if you, were, if you lost your capacity for speech and hearing for nine months and all of a sudden it's restored, would you not praise God first thing? I mean, when some wonderful thing happens in your life you've been hoping for and praying for and waiting upon and it happens, don't you then say, praise God? And we're going to read his song of praise in just a moment and draw hopefully something out of it for our own life. But he begins to praise God. Before he was afflicted, what were Zechariah's last words? What were his last words? Were they words of belief or unbelief? Words of unbelief, words of doubt, weren't they? And now his words are words of what? Words of faith. Faith loosens the tongue. Unbelief ties it up. Real simple principle. If you don't believe, you're not going to talk. If you believe, you're going to talk. The Apostle Paul writes a great thing in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. If you haven't memorized this verse, you ought to memorize it. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? He says, because it is the power of God to change lives for everyone who would believe it. And he says, there's no qualification. Whoever would believe it, the good news, there's power there to change a life. Question, does not just temporal good news have power to change lives? Think about this. Doesn't everyday good news, if you're kind of down and maybe going through the blues a little bit and needing a little good news. Isn't it wonderful when someone comes and says, I've got some good news for you. Doesn't that perk you up at the expectation of good news? And then they tell you the good news, and if it really is good news, I mean, it's like, it's like they tell you, you know, you have this hobby or you have this special interest, and they've discovered some setting in which some thing available to your hobby has become available at a very cheap price. <laughs> Am I making sense? You know what I'm talking about? And so they say, wow, I've got great news. I was just over here and I saw this stuff, you know, and I was at this garage sale. I don't know if you guys like garage sales, but some people love garage sales and they're, they're fun for some people. I can't imagine. I can't imagine sifting through other people's junk. <laughs> but people love it. And so here you are, and, you, and this person brings you this great news, and they tell you about it, and you believe it. What do you think is the net effect on your life? Is there going to be some 
positive change? Doesn't good news have power to change life when it's believed? Now, if you don't believe the good news, is there going to be a net change, positive change? No, you're just going to be the same old dumpy blue self, right? Now, if that's true of temporal, everyday good news, good news that just is here one day, gone tomorrow, what about God's good news? What about God's good news? Paul says, I am not ashamed of God's good news because God's good news is powerful to change lives and change them permanently. Whoever would believe. How many people here this morning know somebody, you know one person at least, who needs some really good news and needs to have their lives changed? Okay, most of you. There's some of you who don't know anybody who needs their life changed. not ashamed of the gospel. I would submit that a lot of people in the church are ashamed of the gospel. I would submit that a lot of the people in the church, not this church necessarily, but the church, don't speak up because they don't believe. Just like Zechariah. Their attitude is an attitude of doubt and unbelief, and they will not speak up. They're intimidated. They're afraid. They don't have the impetus in them to speak up and share the good news. You don't need to be gifted as an evangelist. You don't need to have a special calling to be a pastor. You're already commissioned, if you're a Christian, to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One who would share the good news. Jesus says, go into all the earth, into every living creature, tell them. Tell them and make disciples. That's what he said. So all of us have that great privilege and responsibility. But the degree to which we do it or don't do it tells us the degree to which we believe or don't believe. Now you can protest to me all day long. I believe, I believe. And my response to you is, okay, you believe, how many people are you leading to Christ on a regular basis? How often are you sharing the gospel on a regular basis? Now, I'm not just talking about passing out tracts. I'm talking about sitting down with somebody and explaining to them the truth of who Jesus is. Now, we get caught up in all the busyness of life. We get caught up in all of our routine. We get caught up in all the other stuff. And we lose sight of the important thing, sharing the gospel. If we don't do it, no one else is going to do it. No one else knows except us. No one else believes that book except us. The Muslims aren't going to share it. The Hindus aren't going to share the gospel. The Buddhists aren't going to share the gospel. The people who are taking life spring and asked, they're not going to share the gospel. It's up to us. We're Christ's mouthpiece. It's not until the end of the book of Revelation that an angel flies through heaven and announces the gospel. And until then, it's our turn. So the question is, are we ashamed of the gospel? If you say no, then it ought to be witnessed to by your life. If you really believe, as Paul really believed. And if your life has been impacted by God and you've been changed and you know the reality of the change of God in your life, God has moved in your life powerfully, you will tell other people. There's a young woman in our church tonight that's going to be baptized, I heard today, this morning at the early service. This woman's life has been transformed. Just transformed. And she's so excited, she can't hardly stand it. And she told all her friends and relatives and neighbors. Someone told me this morning she invited 50 people <laughs> to her baptism tonight. Is that true? 50 people? Am I exaggerating? 50 people. Most of them who, who are unsaved. And from the report I'm getting, they're all coming. Now, I don't know how much is truth and how much is exaggeration, but I mean, here's a person who believes... It's not just an intellectual exercise. This person believes, and they're out telling other people. 
I got the greatest news going. I got to tell you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Zechariah, faith opened his mouth. He believed and he spoke. Doubt, unbelief closed his mouth. If your mouth is closed, if you're not sharing the gospel, I would submit to you it's because you don't really believe. Now, after he speaks out, we're told that the neighbors, everybody was filled with awe throughout the hill country of Judea. People were talking about these things. I mean, everybody is filled with a sense of something powerful is happening. Something awesome is happening. All the circumstances spoke to it. I mean, first of all, here's uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, barren and beyond childbearing age, and they're having a son. That's got people's attention. Secondly, Zechariah is unable to speak for nine months, and now he's speaking. That's got people's attention. And thirdly, John's birth and his naming is significant. His name is saying God is merciful. God is in this. God is doing a work. He's been merciful to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and his mercies are present today for the people. And so everybody's in awe. Everybody's going, wow. Now you've got to understand the historical context. Israel at this particular point in their history is very, very secular. They're not religious at all in terms of the true, their true faith. Though the temple is there, though the temple sacrifices and worship and stuff is going on, it is all very perfunctory. Do you know what I'm talking about? They're just going through the motions. There's no real spiritual fervor, significant spiritual fervor, in Israel at this particular point in their history. Everything is rather mundane. In fact, when Jesus comes, just 30 years further on, he goes into the temple, he has to cleanse the temple because they're all just into commercialism. It gives you a clue of where they're at. And so, what we see now, because of, in, against that historical background and context, God is stirring. God is moving. And he starts in some obscure little hill country village with an obscure couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. But he begins to make it very obvious that he's moving. The stage is being set for the promotion of the gospel, which is going to be proclaimed very shortly. The people are in awe of what is happening. Everyone who heard this wondered about it. They marveled. What's going on here? And then as they focused in on the child, on the, on the son that's born, on John, then they would ask, what then is this child going to be? This child is born under unique circumstances. What does this child mean? What is this child going to be? I think possibly some of the people might be thinking, as later on Nicodemus would come to Jesus and would query him if he is the Messiah in a roundabout, beat-around-the-bush fashion, I think probably some of the people are wondering, is this, is this the son? Now, of course, Zechariah and Elizabeth know he's not, but the other people maybe not have insight into that which they know. But the question is being asked, what then is this child going to be? I want to lift that sentence out of the context for a moment. And I want to make a couple of applications I think are, are significant. One, last night after the service, a lady came to me and she shared that, that she and her husband and one other woman were out in front of the abortion clinic yesterday, I guess it was, and they were just praying, just standing out there praying. There's three of them. And uh, if I remember correctly now, and a couple came into the clinic and they, and they stopped them and they asked if they could talk to them. And they began to share with them about 
saving the baby, not aborting the baby. Well, the couple listened, and they made a commitment. They signed a commitment card that they would not abort the baby, that they, they turned around and they said that they'd have the baby and so forth. And she was telling me this testimony, and, and we were just rejoicing. The thought popped into my mind. What is that child going to be? God saved that child. Because three people, faithful, faithful to be out in front of that abortion clinic, reached out talked to that couple. That couple responded. And that whole process, God using these people, saved that child. What destiny yet awaits that child? Mind-boggling. You think about it. A little closer to home for me, I remember when my son was born. I love him with all my heart, or as much of my heart as possible. And I remember when he was born, 12 years ago, Julie and I were in the midst of seminary and doing all sorts of things and all of a sudden it's time for his birth. We'd gone through the birth classes, studied the breathing techniques, all the stuff, you know. They gave me a little egg. I had to carry an egg around with me for several weeks. Care for this egg. And all of a sudden the birth was upon us. I'll never forget that night. She had a traumatic birth. It, it, was, it was a hard birth. And uh, I remember t I tell her this often. I say, you know, I, I respect you so much. <laughs> I hold you in the utmost awe after having witnessed what you went through. In fact, right after the birth, I just took her little head and I said, Darling, you're a 10. <laughs> now, the significance of that is, is all my life I've said there's no 10s, you see. And she knew that. So now I'm saying, you're a 10. <laughs> Which meant, obviously, much to her. Well, Michael was born. Doctors cut the cord, wiped him off handed him to me. Now part of my, my thing is not just coaching and doing what, you know, I mean, I'm almost fainted a couple of times in this process. <laughs> I told her, I said, I said, man, I had a wimped out a long time ago. I said, no way you could ever get me to do what you just gone through. <laughs> True, I'm telling you, I just, they hand, me, they hand me the baby, and, and I get to give him his first bath. You know, that was part of the little stuff, you know, little thing, and so I get him his first bath. And, and he just, eyes just focused around me. Now, I don't know if he could see me or not, some debate about that, but I mean, I, our eyes are just glued, they're connected. He's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and I got him in this little bathinette and holding him and just rubbing him, and all of a sudden it dawns on me. Oh man, now it starts. <laughs> I mean, I said, what am I going to do? How am I going to raise him? And people had given us all these books, you know. And all, all the books, all the child-rearing books. And we were reading them and trying to remember all the stuff we were reading. And, and you know, all those child-rearing books conflict? I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> Finally, I just said, wait a minute. I mean, I'm in seminary. I said, wait a minute. We threw all the child-rearing books away, and I said, there's only one book we need. This one. You need two things. You need this book and a big stick. I'm serious. I'm not joking. The Bible says you spare the rod, you spoil the child. You need to just walk softly, carry a big stick, 
Now remember, it's not punishment. It's discipline. Always with an eye to the future. Now do you know the way you should go? Yes! So I got him here in this thing, and all these thoughts are flooding through my mind, and all of a sudden, the reality... Two things. The Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord. But they're also a great responsibility. Every child is a bundle of possibilities. I said, I began to pray, and I began to say, Oh, God, God, show me. Student of this young life. Help me to be a student of my son. Help me, oh God, so that I might know and recognize how you've gifted him, what talents you built into him, Lord, so that I can be used to draw them out. To maximize all that you built into his life, that I could be a good steward over his life. See, for most of us, we were not trained up. For most of us, our parents really did not know how to be students of us. Most of us were drug up. And I would pray, and I still pray today, every night. I kneel beside his bed when he's asleep, and I just lay my hand on him. Sometimes I lay there next to him and hug him and kiss him. Can't wake him up. He sleeps like a log. Either that or he's awfully good at ignoring me. I prayed for him. I said, God, blunt the harvest of my foolishness in his life. Protect his life, Lord, from the things that I'm oblivious to, that I don't see, that I'm missing. Protect him from my laziness, my failures. God, protect him. It's an awesome thing to participate with God in the creation of another human being who will live forever. And our impact on their life as parents has a significant, a significant effect in their eternal destiny. The greatest gift that you or I as parents can give our children is the person we're becoming. You can't just tell our kids. You can't just beat our kids. You can't just preach at them. You can't just buy them off. You can't just give them toys and park them with the babysitter. The greatest gift that we can impart to our children is the very life that we have. Who am I? And who am I becoming? Am I committed to the principle of growth and maturity? Because if I am, and as I grow and mature, I have greater gift to give to my child. What will this child be? What will this child become? as a result of God's mercy. God, be merciful to us as parents. How many would say amen to that? Amen. amen. Now we turn to Zechariah's praise song, that which he breaks forth into praise. He's inspired. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he breaks forth into praise. The song is broken into four sections. The first one is verses 68 through 70, and it's basically a, a praise of God for the Savior, a praise of God for the Messiah. The second section is verses 71 through 75, and that he praises God for the great deliverance. Let's look at those first two sections quickly. He says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come, and he has redeemed his people. How has God come? How has he redeemed his people? He goes on and he says, He has raised up a horn of salvation. 
Horn is a reference to strength. He has raised up a strong salvation. Beloved, you and I need to be saved with a strong salvation. It takes a strong Savior to save us from our enemies. Sin, the devil, and death. It takes a strong Savior to save us. And so God has come. He has redeemed us with a strong Savior, indeed one of the house of David, just as it had been prophesied from long ago, he says. So there's a strong Savior who has come, not will come, has come. For Zechariah, the answer has arrived. Everything he's prayed for. Now incidentally, you need to know this. When he went in and offered that, that, that incense sacrifice earlier on when Gabriel came in and spoke to him in the holy place. Remember that? The prayers that he prayed along with the incense being offered and all the prayers that the people waiting outside in the temple courts were praying in conjunction with his prayers there in the holy place, those prayers, you can find them in the Hebrew book of prayer. They are prayers crying out for God to save his people, to send the Savior, to redeem his people, that the light that he had promised through Isaiah, through Malachi, that the light would break in on the darkness and would lead his people to their preeminent place among all the nations. Now Israel will, will rule Israel will be preeminent. Jerusalem will be the holy city which God will dwell and all the nations would stream to Jerusalem, the Bible says, in the end time. In the, uh, in the end time, in the, uh, in the new, new heavens and the new earth. And so Zechariah is praising God for the realization now of the answer to all these prayers. For nine months, he's been incommunicado. For nine months, he's been meditating on the very prayers as well as the words of, Jerem of uh, Gabriel to him. He's been meditating on the words that he had prayed. And now, right before his eyes, the fulfillment, the answer to these prayers are coming. All he can do is break forth in praise. He is one turned-on Jew. Let me tell you, this guy is one turned-on guy. And then he moves to the second part in verses 71 through 75, and he says, salvation from our enemies. Now Israel, remember, at this time had a very shallow view of salvation. They were predominantly concerned with being saved, delivered, rescued from the Romans, who they were enslaved to at this particular point in history. Salvation, however, goes much deeper than just temporal salvation. It's spiritual. Salvation always spiritual first and then works its way out into the temporal realm. Healing is always spiritual first and works its way out into the temporal realm. It always starts spiritual first. And so when he talks about being saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us, in reality, though he may be thinking and interpreting Rome, God is talking about greater enemies than that. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, we war not, we battle not, we fight not against flesh and blood, but rather against spiritual powers and principalities and so forth. He says, he goes on, he says, you've shown mercy to our fathers, you've remembered your holy covenant, the oath you swore to our father Abraham. God had promised Abraham he'd bless him and all of his posterity. Not only have you delivered us from our enemies, but you have kept your promise to Abraham to bless your people. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve you without fear in holiness and righteousness before you all of our days. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13... Great, great statement. Paul says, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his son whom he loves. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his son whom he loves. And he has enabled us. 
now in this new kingdom in which we live, no longer enslaved to death, no longer enslaved to Satan, no longer enslaved to sin, we are now enabled to serve him without fear. Important. We are enabled to save him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. Substantially. Not perfectly here yet. There will be a day when we will serve him perfectly without hindrance. We are still hindered by these bodies. We are still hindered by the world. We are still hindered by the activity of Satan and his horde of demons in this world. There's still hindrances. So we're not able to serve him unhindered yet, though we are able to serve him in a substantial way while we're still presently alive. But there will be a day when that service will be unhindered. The Bible says that this, the heavens and the earth are going to pass away. They're going to be burned up with the great heat. God is going to destroy the heavens and the earth, and he's going to recreate them. And he's going to recreate them without death, no more sin, no more evil, no more injustice, no more tears, no more grief, no more poverty, no more pain. It's going to be glorious. And when he recreates them, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be serving God. We're going to be working. Work is a divine principle. Do you know that? If you're not working, then you're out of order with God. God means for us to be productive. We're going to be productive in heaven, in paradise, in glory, however you want to describe it. But we're going to be working in an unhindered manner. We're going to know the joy of work unhindered. Now we get glimpses of that now. Periodically, every so often, you just get a slight glimpse of the joy of work, don't you? Yes. Now, it's not often. <laughs> it's not often. But every so often, you just get a, just a glimpse of the joy of work. I mean, when everything is clicking, everything's in place, boom, 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 you're moving on all the cylinders. Everything's just falling in place. You're going, wow, this is great. I really love my job. Now, people around you, when it's not clicking for them, they go, what? <laughs> but God gives us little glimpses of what's in store for us. When we go to heaven, we're not just going to be sitting around on clouds with our harps, polishing our halos, flapping wings. When we go to heaven, there's work to be done. Now, I don't know what kind of work it is. Paul says in, in Corinthians, he says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of that which God has in store for us. It's beyond our even capacity to imagine what God has already prepared. The new heavens and the new earth. There's a principle that God's built into the universe. And the principle is this. If you're faithful with a little, you can be trusted with more. Isn't that true? Do we know that? And so I believe that this life is a training ground. I believe that this life is an opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness. That's why when you get to heaven, if you've been a faithful servant, God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come in and enjoy your master's what? Rest. Rest from the grief of labor. And so whatever God has given you to do, be faithful with it. Because that will maybe possibly have an impact on what he's going to entrust into your hands in glory. That's the reward. Store up your treasure in heaven. Work hard. Be diligent. Be faithful because you're storing up treasure in heaven. Great treasure. A great weight of glory, he says, in heaven. Now, I don't know what we're going to be doing. Serving God. Exciting. Exciting. But in an unhindered manner. holy and righteous before him all of our days. The third section, he describes John's participation in this whole process, verses 76 and 77. He says, And you, my son, will be called a prophet of the Most High. Now remember, there had not been a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. Now all of a sudden, Israel is going to have a prophet. Someone is going to come and prick their conscience again. Someone is going to come and stir them up again. They haven't had this for 400 years. They've gotten rather complacent. We need people to come and stir us up, don't we? Absolutely. So he's going to be prophet of the Most High. 
he's going to be a radical departure from what had become customary in Israel, literally. He was not only to be a prophet, but he goes on to say, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To prepare the way for him. John could not save men. He was not the Savior, but he would only call men to repentance and tell them about the one who could save them. He says, you'll give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Now follow me. This is very important. Listen closely. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. You've got to know this verse. Paul says that it's godly sorrow that brings repentance leading to salvation. Godly sorrow. That means a genuine remorse. You understand you have done wrong. Now, as a parent, if I'm going to discipline my son, if I want to correct him, I want him to be sorry for what he's done, but not because he's going to get discipline. I want him to be sorry because what he's done is wrong, destructive. Because it's only when I understand from that perspective, only then am I able to repent. That means turn around. Stop going that direction, start going this direction. If I'm just sorry because I'm going to get in trouble, that is not a strong enough impetus for me to turn around and go the other way. I will feign repentance. I will pretend repentance. I'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. Ha! Only until I understand the import of what I have done and the impact of it and how damaging it is will I then possibly turn around. Once I repent, then and only then is it possible for me to be saved. You've got to understand that. Zechariah prophesies of John. He says that you will give the people the knowledge of salvation. How? Through the forgiveness of their sins. John comes and preaches what? Repentance. Repentance. You can only be saved if you repent... Only then can you be forgiven of your sins. John has a significant role to play in this whole process. Question. What is the highest purpose to which any one of us can aspire? What is the highest purpose to which any one of us can live our life for? The glory of God? Serving God? Making a lot of money? Accumulating great wealth? Position, prestige, power? You aspire to high office? What's the highest purpose to which you can aspire? To become famous? Well-known? What's the highest purpose to which you and I can aspire? I would submit to you, the highest purpose to which any one of us can aspire is this, to lead somebody to Christ. Because that life is infinitely valuable as witnessed to and testified by the sacrifice, the infinite sacrifice made on behalf of that life. So the highest purpose to, you, to which you and I can aspire is to introduce somebody to Jesus. All of us can do that. Jesus said... Now listen, he says, when I'm gone, I want you to go out into all the world and I want you to tell every living creature about me, make disciples. Tell them about me. So that means that you and I are charged with the wonderful responsibility and privilege of in every environment, in every conversation with family, friends, associates, People we meet on the street, we're riding on the bus, no matter where we are, in no matter if any conversation, we somehow figure out a way to work in the context of that conversation this question. By the way, may I ask you a question? 
Most people are going to say, well, sure. Are you a Christian? Now that opens up a lot of possibilities, does it not? Are you a Christian? The person says, why, yes. I say, wonderful. <laughs> My next question is, where do you fellowship? Where do you go to church? Because there's lots of unchurched Christians. So I say, where do you go to church? If they go to church someplace, I say, wonderful. <laughs> if they don't go to church and they live in the area, I say, I've got just the place for you. <laughs> now, if they say to me, no, I'm not a Christian, I respond with astonishment. You're not a Christian? <laughs> Why not? I mean, to me, it is inconceivable. To me, it is absolutely inconceivable why, why somebody who hears the gospel, hears the good news, could possibly refuse the free gift of life, eternal life. Turn it down. It's free. You can't earn it. It doesn't cost you. You just you would turn it down. It's inconceivable to me. And so I respond with utter astonishment because I, like Zechariah, am in utter amazement of God's mercy to me. And I want them to know that I am astounded by the fact that they said no. Now, I used to carry a little card with me years ago. I haven't done this in a long, long, long time. Years ago, I was a new Christian. I used to carry this little card and it had on it this statement. I categorically reject Jesus Christ in his claims to be the savior of mankind, and I reject the fact that he died for my sins. Then there's a place for their signature. <laughs> and I used to talk to people. I used to carry these little cards in my pocket, and I used to talk to them, and I'd say, oh, well, you reject Christ. Okay, would you read this? They read it. And I said, would you sign it? I never, ever had anybody sign that card. It would not sign it. That's what you just told me. You reject Christ. Sign the card. No. I got him coming and going. Now, if they respond to me that, they, that they're not a Christian and, and I respond with astonishment, I say to them, no, listen, listen. Would you give me just 20 minutes? Because before you reject Christ, I want you to know just exactly who it is and what it is you're rejecting. You do not want to reject Christ out of ignorance, do you? What do you think they're going to do? No. I said, you want to make an intelligent choice, don't you? <laughs> What are they going to do? Now, if I can lead them that way, I'm going to lead them to Christ. If I can get them doing this, chances are, not every case, obviously, but chances are, I'm going to get them agreeing with me. I'm going to sit down. I just want 20 minutes. I'm going to explain the gospel to them. Now, I have had people, after all of that, tell me no. And I just walk away. I, my, I mean, my jaw just dropped. I, just, I can't believe this. But you see, in the next part, the last part of that psalm, John dwells on, or uh, I'm sorry, Zechariah dwells on in his hymn of praise, he dwells on the rising sun from heaven. He recalls, he recalls the hymns, the, the praise, the prophecies from Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 60, Malachi chapter 4 describing the sun breaking in on those who are in the dark. Those who are in the shadow of death, the light coming from heaven and breaking in and leading those people out in the path of peace. And you and I get that great privilege to tell people. There are millions and millions of people today in the dark. Millions of people in the dark. Millions of people groping around. Millions of people in therapy, millions of people asking questions, millions of people reading all the PMA and self-help books, millions of people looking for answers, 
Millions of people who are in the shadow of death. Millions of people who are alcoholics, drug addicts, sex addicts, cigarette addicts. No matter what it is, they're, they're plagued by some kind of compulsive behavior. Millions of people who are overeating, undereating. Millions of people living in denial. They need to be set free. They need to be set free. Millions of people who are in the dark. And we got the good news. We've got the good news. The question is, do we believe it? Do we believe it? Not just intellectually, do we believe it? Has the good news so impacted our life that we have compassion on these people and we're moved to go and tell them? Say, I've got great news for you. I've got the greatest news you can ever want to hear. Let me share it with you. I care about you. I care about what happens to you. When you approach somebody with an attitude of love and compassion, I promise you, you will break down the barriers of resistance in their life and you will get a hearing. I care about what happens to your life. I care about your family. Can I share the greatest news with you? It's as if people are locked in a car in the middle of the worst part of town. Their car battery has just conked out on them. It's in the middle of the night and they're terrified. They're terrified that out of the shadows are going to come creeping people who are going to break into the car, drag them out and murder them. They're in the dark, in the shadow of death, and they're terrified. Crying out, somebody help! And the light of heaven dawns and breaks in that darkness. A police car pulls up. <laughs> Bright light. You go, whoo, I'm saved! And that police car with that light leads you out of that darkness into a place of safety and peace. Jesus saves. If you're in the dark today, if you're living under the shadow of death, if you realize that you're a sinner and you're living in denial and your life is a mess, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can receive the good news. There is a way out of your grief. There's a way out of your darkness. Jesus is that way. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. If you're lost, I'm the way. If you don't know what's true, if you're fumbling around, he says, I'm the truth. If you're perishing, I'm the life. Father, thank you for your grace to us. We pray, Lord, this morning... I pray for those in our midst who don't yet know you, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. I pray for us as a congregation that we would be emboldened, that we would be emboldened as Paul prayed, that the saints at Ephesus would pray that he would be bold to preach, that we also would be emboldened to speak out and tell other people and to bring the good news to bear on lives that are in the dark, lives that are in the shadow of death, lives that have no peace, lives that are diseased, infected, full of fear, anxiety, anger, bitterness, resentment. Lord, we pray for healing this morning. Go ahead right now. You know, when we give an invitation, I don't know if you're aware of it, but not only are we praying for the people, be praying for me too, because the enemy's working on me thinking, oh, no, no, no one's going to come. You may as well close it. You may as well quit. 
And if we just persist a few minutes, just persist a few minutes, boy, there's a release, huh? Let's praise God. Amen?